Today we finally get to return back to our Daniel sermon series. If you have your Bibles, go to Daniel chapter 6. We uh, stepped away from this passage halfway through this chapter to do the When You Come Together series. And uh, I'm glad to be back here today to wrap up what is one of the most familiar stories in the Old Testament. And I think it's a timely one for us in what it teaches. Earlier in this chapter, Darius, the king of the Media Persian Empire, conquered Babylon in a single night. Daniel, the prophet, had been serving the king of Babylon there for many years at this point. Now, Daniel finds himself in a palace that is under new management. Darius established his rule after taking over the city by hiring high officials and satraps to watch over the kingdom. And early in his reign, he recognized in Daniel something worthy of promotion. Yet, as is so often the case, the rise in status attracted the attention of Daniel's enemies. They sought to find a complaint against him, but they could not find a ground for complaint. Well, this didn't stop them. They then conspired to bring him down. They introduced a bill that would require all people in the empire to only pray to the king for an entire month. So bad guys proposed a bad rule, and the king signed it into law. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel 6. We're going to go verses 10 through 28. Uh, our effort today will be to wrap up the chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read this portion out loud, pray, and then go back through a bit at a time. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O oh, king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O oh, king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of the Lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, 
O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel had brought and had them brought and cast into the den of lions they their children and their wives and before they reached the bottom of the den the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces then king darius wrote to all the peoples nations and languages that dwell in all the earth peace be multiplied to you i make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and to fear before the god of daniel for he is the living god enduring forever His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray. Father, this morning we appeal to you as we read your word, that as usual we would give you glory in the way that we hear it and the way that we think about it and apply it. The Lord, that it would be for our joy. We would worship you more completely as we grow in our understanding of what you have taught us. Father, I believe that this is a timely passage for us. This is the kind of passage that would be helpful for believers to inspect and to meditate on and to study, and especially in times like these, Lord. So please use this passage in such a way that it would serve us. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Going back to the beginning of that text we just read, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So the bill had become a law, and once put into effect, it could not be changed. And what did Daniel do? With full knowledge of this new irreversible statute, Daniel went back to his home and prayed. Now, it wasn't very long ago that I preached through this same passage and made a point of a few observations. So at a risk of being repetitive, I'm going to go ahead and repeat those again. The five observations here concerning Daniel's prayer. Five specific and a sixth implied. First, you'll notice in this prayer that Daniel's window was open toward Jerusalem. Now, long before the days of Daniel, King Solomon gave a public prayer at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. And in that prayer, he asked for God to hear the pleas of his people, even if they were ever to sin so grievously that they would be taken captive to a foreign land. That's what Solomon was expecting. Of course, that is what took place. This is what Solomon prayed in that prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. 
This verse was certainly not a command for the people. Rather, it's a plea to God. But perhaps this is what Daniel had in mind when he opened his windows, praying toward Jerusalem. Second observation is that Daniel knelt down and got on his knees. This likewise is nowhere commanded in Scripture, but it is a familiar posture of prayer in the Bible. In fact, in the same prayer that I just referenced in 2 Chronicles, Solomon, before all the people, got down on his knees with his hands outstretched in a position of submission, kneeling before God as he made that prayer. Psalm 95.6, David writes, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. It is the way that people show deference and respect to a king. And Daniel adopted this position of submission and kneeled before God. Third observation, he did this three times a day. Daniel had a dedicated slot at three specific times that he would make sure to go before the Lord. This was a regular pattern for Daniel that he continued even after the order was given. It wasn't just a one-off. This was something that he did repeatedly as the New Testament commands that we would pray without ceasing. Fourth observation, in his prayer here, it says that he gave thanks. He gave thanks before his God. After having learned of the new law and the penalty for breaking it, we might think that what would be highlighted here is Daniel's prayer to God for help. But that's not what we see. Now, Daniel probably did pray for help. Later, the text here will mention that he was offering up a petition and a plea. Seems likely that's what he's pleading for. But here, it highlights the fact that he was giving thanks before his God. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is how Christians pray. Even when bad things happen, even when we are under persecution and enduring wicked circumstances, God deserves our gratitude. So if you were to ask it in a question, when does God deserve our praise, our thanks, our worship? And the answer is always. And so that is a part of his prayer even here. The fifth point is implied. This observation is one that I think is present, even though it's not said explicitly in the text. And it's this. Daniel almost certainly prayed out loud. How do we think this? Because the whole charade would not have worked out for the wicked officials if they could not witness him clearly praying to God rather than to the king. Remember, the law did not forbid prayer. Rather, it demanded that all prayers being made would be offered to the king, whether they were in public or in private. Daniel's prayers certainly were publicly observable by witnesses, and very likely had been for some time, which is probably what brought about this plan in the first place. Judge for yourself, but I think that it is likely to assume that Daniel's prayer was out loud. And there's one more vital phrase here, which will be the sixth observation made about his prayer. It is as he had done previously. This is no minor point. In fact, if we miss this, then our application of texts like these might really miss the mark. This was a regular practice for Daniel. Daniel did not hear the law think, oh really? Oh, you think you can tell me what to do? Well, guess who's going to start a new prayer plan so that everybody can see? No. By that prompting, he didn't just start this. His prayers were genuine and routine for him. Now it has always been a good time for a Christian who has been lax in his or her prayer life to begin a regular regimen of prayer. 
So it would have been wrong to say that a person ought not begin praying in such an instant like this. I don't believe it would have been sin for Daniel to begin praying after having heard the law expressed. After all, the Bible does command us to pray continually without ceasing. But that's not what's happening here. So here's the challenge for us as we consider Daniel's prayer life. If our government were to announce a new law tomorrow, that said, anyone who prays to God, anyone who reads the Bible, anyone who teaches their children about Jesus, anyone who shares their faith with others will be counted as a criminal based on your current spiritual disciplines, would you be at risk? It's a good challenge for us as we observe the life of faithful Daniel. The text continues. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. These were those officials, those satraps, who conspired against Daniel. They were not well-intentioned. They were not seeking the best interest of their nation or of their king. They did not just happen to stumble upon Daniel praying while out for an evening walk. They knew exactly what they were planning They watched him pray, and so far, this plan was going just as they had intended. Verse 12 says, Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man for the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Now, notice how these cunning officials deal with the king. They don't come right out and tell the king about Daniel. Hey, we just saw this dude. They ask the question when they already knew the answer in order to set up the king. And here we see a bit of how Persian law works. The king cannot disobey the law, even a law that required his prior approval. It cannot be revoked. This law stands fast. The trap has been set for the king, and he doesn't even know it yet. And here it is sprung in verse 13. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Here they finally level their accusation, and the king is caught. This is the moment they've been waiting for. They're probably feeling pretty good about themselves right about now. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So they waved their constitution under his nose in order to establish what should happen next. Now up until this point, we have no idea what kind of relationship that the king had with Daniel or how he thought about him more than he was ready to appoint Daniel to a high office. He was prepared to do that. So it kicked this whole thing off. But for all we know up to this point, his well-thinking of Daniel may have been tenuous, merely pragmatic. But now it's clear that Darius is genuinely upset about the thought of losing Daniel. And it seems like there is more emotion in his concern than merely a desire to preserve an ally or an asset to his kingdom. And he fails 
in his search for some kind of legal loophole. This is quite odd. Even in a Western democracy as ours, in America, our Constitution affords a president the privilege of pardoning criminals. For all crimes committed, charged or uncharged, is the language in our law. Did you know that technically a president of the United States can pardon his own crimes? Yet this king, according to Persian custom, lacks even that kind of power, even as a monarch. So here's what happens next. Verses 16 through 18. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Again, it seems like his concern for Daniel is genuine. It's legitimate. It's deeper than mere pragmatism. But no matter how moved he was by this event, the king acquiesces to the officials, and he consents to Daniel's execution. He personally seals the cover to the den. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Even though he was the one who had sealed Daniel's tomb, the king was still hoping that somehow, Daniel would still be alive, and his hope for sure was realized. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. God rescued Daniel that night supernaturally. This is the scene that is painted on the murals in the Sunday school rooms. Daniel standing amongst the lions who aren't attacking him, aren't eating him. The king looking into the open hole, seeing that God has done a mighty work. The king's response is listed next. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel had officially been rescued. But not only was Daniel not dead, but he had not even been harmed. It was not like it was a long night of battling out the lions that he barely survived by the skin of his teeth. And Daniel makes this note in the retelling of this story of why no harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. This was a reward for Daniel's trust. Verse 24 says, And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. It's a vivid picture, a brutal one, in fact. Apparently, all of a sudden, this king finds his backbone. And this is the part of the story that never quite makes it into the mural on the Sunday school walls, right? I was reading this passage to my kids just this last week, earlier this week, 
And uh, one of them remarked, oh, what? Wait, they, they, did, they, they threw the wives and kids in too? Yeah. Darius made an example out of these men. But his actions here are not sanctioned by God's word, but merely described. In fact, by this action, King Darius breaks yet another of God's laws, punishing innocent children for their sins of their fathers. The text continues. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And it's hard to imagine that this king could possibly know just how true his words really were and what he said about the living God. But the conclusion to the story is that one man's civil disobedience led to a proclamation of God's power and glory before an entire nation. 2020 and 2021 exposed the ignorance of many Christians regarding political theology, right thinking about the powers that be in our world and in our nation from a Christian perspective. It seems that a broad ignorance has swept over the face of modern Western Christianity regarding these things. Well, we've been busy looking at other doctrines and studying other passages and debating other topics. Somehow, this one has gone unnoticed. It seems as though many Western Christians have forgotten where we got our Western democracy. Ever pause to think about that? When since the earliest days of humanity, mankind in his various societies was ruled by kings and by monarchs, by tyrants, Various degrees of power he wielded over people. How in the world did Westerners end up with a constitution? With a representative republic in America? Where did those things even come from? The answer is very, very clear in history. Because Christians, Christians before us, understood government and its God-given limits far better than we do today. From this story, I want to make two points. We're going to use these as a, coming from the book of Daniel, as a helpful application for us today. Two things to think about from this text. In closing. First, no king is above God's law. No king is above God's law. Let me say it this way. No king is above the law. We saw a little bit of that play out with Darius, right? He could not revoke the law. No king is above the law, but no law is above God's commands. This that was put into effect in Persia was a wicked law. Not only should it have never been proposed and never ratified, 
But the people should never have submitted to it. The enforcers should have refused to follow through. No ruler, no matter how powerful, is authorized by God to make a law that is contrary to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, contrary to his word. To put it in a way that Christians have long seen, a king may not forbid what God commands, nor command what God forbids. And Darius did both. He forbade prayer to God as he commands, and he commanded prayer to a king which God despises. Now question, did King Darius have the authority to make this law? Just a helpful intellectual mental exercise. Did King Darius have the authority to make this law? The answer is absolutely not. God does not grant men the authority to sin against him, nor does he grant the authority to cause others to sin against him. And you and I must at least begin here. We have to get this right. We are never permitted by God to obey evil laws. That, at the very least, should be obvious. You should know that, unfortunately, throughout history, many Christians did not agree with that statement. There have been Christians who have followed what's called the divine right of kings, it's a false doctrine that says that mankind is not held accountable for sins that he commits when obeying a ruler. So if a ruler commands that you bow to Baal and worship a false god, that God would not hold you accountable for it. And you should just submit and sin against God, and that's okay. That, of course, is absolutely absurd and is definitely against God's commands. It was Peter the Apostle who said, that we must obey God rather than men. It is Daniel, this righteous prophet, who disobeys outright the king's command and is rewarded for that disobedience. No king, no matter how powerful, may demand that we sin. But I want to offer a second question. Did King Darius have the authority to overturn this law? It's an interesting part that's made mentioned multiple times in this chapter. Did King Darius have the authority to overturn this law? And the answer is absolutely yes. Yes. He had absolutely clear authority to overturn this wicked law. God's law is higher than Persian law or Babylonian law or Roman law or American law. Darius does not get a pass on this one, just because he was simply following the law. Oh, my hands are tired. I can't do anything about this. Even if somehow he was tricked into signing the document into law in the first place, not really understanding what was going on, not really understanding how awful it was, was one more of those many papers on his desk at the end of the day he was supposed to put his signature upon. Nevertheless, the moment it became clear what was going on, he should have interposed between the wicked officials and the innocent Daniel. In fact, his act of abdication here is yet one more sin on his account. Proverbs 24.11 tells us that we ought to rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. This king did neither of those things. He did not intervene when innocent persons were being taken to death. He did not hold back those who were stumbling to the slaughter. He did not punish evil 
and protect good, he abdicated his responsibility for those things. So we ought not say, well, poor Darius, his hands were just tied. We say, man up, king, and do what God demands of you. God is the one who puts you in your position. He is the one who commands you to punish evil and reward good. So you and I ought not feel bad for Darius. No man is above God's law. Much more could be said about that, but let's continue to the second point from this text. You and I need to know that a king's jurisdiction is limited. The extent of a king's authority is limited. It is never absolute. No authority given to men is absolute. No husband has absolute authority over his wife. No pastor has absolute authority over his congregation. No parent has absolute authority over his children, nor master over his slaves. God has given civil authorities very specific instructions. They are to punish what is evil and reward what is good. God alone is the one who determines what is evil and what is good. This is one of those oft-forgotten components of law. Christians would be well-served to consider these things regularly. God determines what is right and what is wrong, not man. It is not the job of a king or a senate or any other congress of humankind that they may determine what is good and bad. We are to effort with all of our strength, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, to love and honor God most and people second and self last. We are to try to legislate according to what he says. This ought to be the manual used by all congresses everywhere to determine what is right and wrong and what laws ought and ought not be put into effect. A ruler is not authorized to bear the sword in any area beyond the punishment of evil and the reward or protection of good. He may not make arbitrary rules. And if he does, we are not required to obey. By arbitrary here, I mean laws that are not necessarily moral. They're not necessarily contrary to God's word, but beyond the jurisdiction of the ruler. Examples, I've given examples of this in the past. Just because a ruler, a king, a president likes the color blue, he may not demand that we all wear the color blue. It is not in his lane. He has no authority in such things. He cannot just say, I don't like bunk beds, so those are outlawed. He cannot say, lights out at 9 o'clock at night, no matter where you are, because I think a good night's sleep is important. It's not quite relevant, king. You have no authority in such realms. His reasoning beyond these, or behind these things, why he would seek to do these things, is irrelevant. It is irrelevant if he thinks it's good for the people, for them to have lights out at a certain time. It's irrelevant if the color blue really is the best of the colors. He has no authority in such things. God has given earthly rulers a lane, and colors of clothing, types of furnishing, times that you go to sleep are not in his lane. So many Christians have proven extraordinary ignorance in regards to these doctrines in our day. Even when the civil authorities in many parts of our country and around the world outlawed corporate worship, Christians complied. When governments outlawed what God demands, they complied. 
And they even had the audacity to judge any Christians who would dare obey the Bible. How dare you not obey your king? Why did they comply? For a number of reasons, to be sure. But one central argument from believers in that situation was that the laws imposed by the rulers were not intended to interrupt our worship. They just did so incidentally. They argued the church isn't being uniquely targeted, so this doesn't qualify for persecution, and therefore we as believers should just comply. Now, even if we were to grant that point, that it was not the intention, the church was not targeted, I wouldn't grant that, but even if we were to grant that, that's not what we see here in Daniel's story. Answer this question for yourself. Were the wicked officials trying to disrupt Daniel's worship of God? No. They were not trying to get him to dishonor God. In fact, the text says explicitly they knew he wouldn't dishonor God. They were not trying to get him in trouble with God, but with the king. Daniel will worship his God. Daniel will pray to his God no matter what we do. They weren't trying to stop that. They were trying to get him in trouble with the law. This new order did not require that people actively worship the king. Daniel could have avoided any legal issues while still obeying the law of God. Ask yourself, does God's word command us to pray out loud? Does it command us to pray in an open window? Does it command us to pray in such a way that our prayers can be observed by others? Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus even tells us in Matthew 6, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Additionally, the law was only supposed to last for a month. Daniel could have avoided this issue in a whole host of ways. He could have just headed out of town for that month or switched rooms for that prayer time for a short 30 days or simply closed the window. There were so many things he could have done for a very temporary period of time in order to keep the peace, but he didn't. He didn't. Daniel could have been in full compliance with the laws of his land and still obeyed the laws of God. To say it another way, Daniel could have outwardly obeyed all the king's laws and inwardly obeyed all of God's laws, and peace would have abounded. But he refused, and we must see this. The charge leveled against believers in the past is the same as it will be in our future. We are charged as disturbers of the peace, contrarians, revolutionaries, the threats to public health and safety, and as enemies of the state. Daniel went to the lion's den not on the charge of faithful to God, but on the charge of broke the king's law. Samuel Rutherford, in his famous book, Lex Rex, wrote this. Christ, the prophets, and apostles of our Lord went to heaven marked as traitors, seditious men, and such as turned the world upside down. Accusations of treason to Caesar were an ingredient in Christ's cup. To say it in a different way, no king writes martyr on the gravestone of murdered saints. 
If that's the kind of overt persecution that you are waiting for before you are willing to stand for what is right, that day may never come. Martyrs are made by practice. Martyrs are made by practice. No one stumbles into martyrdom. If you are not willing to take any heat for the seemingly little things, what makes you think you'll be ready to face the fires for your faith? The man who was more afraid of what his boss says than his savior, too timid to share the gospel with his neighbor, eager to go with the flow of the world around him in order to avoid conflict today, should not dream that he will be ready to be counted among faithful martyrs. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You might remember, this is Daniel chapter 6. Five chapters preceded this one. Multiples of those, Daniel and his compatriots, those who were next to him, his other Hebrew partners who had been exiled in Judah with him, stood strong against wicked laws, appealed to their masters and rulers because they refused to dishonor God even with something as simple as food. And they were willing to stand alone, put their lives on the line. When these moments come, these past examples had preceded those moments of victory in things that were seemingly small. Some Christians wrongly think that if we just lie low, keep our heads down, do our jobs, don't pick any fights, we're going to be at peace with everyone. That is not the case. Can you do a better job of that than Jesus? They killed him. While Daniel may not fit the picture in our mind of a classic rebel, he does, however, act with total and utter disregard for this law. Like, nothing changes. He doesn't budge. He doesn't alter his prayer time one tiny bit as a result of this law. This is why breaking an earthly law does not necessarily make you morally guilty. Did you notice what verse 21 said? I'll read it again, 22. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel literally says, I have not sinned against God and I have not broken any law. Because that foolish statement you sign ain't no law. No harm was done to the king or to that nation. In fact, great good would result. Daniel's disobedience was in no way harmful to his king. Although he is condemned as a criminal, according to civil law, the law was unjust and therefore he was blameless before both God and king. We, just like Daniel are not obligated to obey the command of any authority who goes beyond his jurisdiction. We may boldly, as Daniel did, break a law without a flicker of hesitation in our conscience, knowing that we have brought no dishonor to our Lord and no harm to our King. It is possible that our compliance to laws that impose on our God-given freedoms that if we were to do so and to comply, even with orders that unintentionally impose on our God-given freedoms or only incidentally impose on our worship or a care of our homes, we may be contributing to future abuses of power. Christians have done a terrible job of this in the past several generations. Christians should never have let the wickedness of slavery infest our land. 
or the racism of Jim Crow laws in the American South to survive a day. We should have pushed back on evolution being pushed into our public schools. We should have refused to let secularists remove prayer from the public sphere. We shouldn't have rolled over when abortion, the slaughter of the innocents, was made legal, when no-fault divorce became sanctioned, when so-called homosexual marriage was approved and then celebrated, when every form of sexual perversion was tolerated and then glorified in the name of inclusivity, when governments all across our land declared that corporate worship of our Lord and Savior is non-essential, Christians should have stood up with one voice and said, no, not going to happen. But for far too long, Christians have just said, well, that's the law of the land, and as long as we can still pray privately and it doesn't affect my alone time between me and God, and we should just submit. That is folly. And it is not the activity of the believers who came before us. Those out of the Bible and those in. Nowhere in sacred scripture can we find a single teaching that obligates Christians to obey laws that are beyond a ruler's God-given scope of authority. Not one. And we see a multitude of examples of people disobeying their rulers to the glory of God that produces great good. There is only one absolute authority, and his name is Jesus Christ. He has been given jurisdiction over all the parts of our lives. Jesus said before his ascension, all authority in heaven and, and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. We make disciples with that in mind. If you're supposed to figure out how we are to live rightly, peace with neighbor as much as is possible on our part, how we are to live in submission to government, how we are to live not as rebels in this world, but as those with an eagerness to submit before right rule authorized by God, you must know the word. If you don't know the commands of our King of Kings, Jesus, a whole host of errors will likely result from our poor attempt to utilize these doctrines. We as sinners have sinned against a perfect and righteous king. He has absolute authority over us. He tells us what we can and can't do in private, in our own hearts and our minds. Not only the activities that we perform, but the way that we think. For the person who says, well, I haven't done many crimes. I haven't killed anyone. I don't steal. I don't do all these awful things. The Bible tells us that as sinners, Jesus judges the heart of man and not only his activities. And so we say this here like this. Your heart is not an asset. It's a liability. Because the fact is, God will judge all of those wicked deeds in a person, and you and I then should be greatly afraid of that judgment of God. Except that in his great and good mercy, he sent his perfect son to die for the sins that we have incurred, that we may have peace with him, forgiveness of all of those sins. And if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, you put your saving faith in him and him alone, you can have eternal life, and you can be raised from the dead as Jesus was raised from the dead to new life and have eternal life with him. We appeal to anyone who ever hears this. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to. You need to find the true king to submit to. Aren't you tired of submitting to wicked kings? Submit first to the king of kings and watch him teach you how to deal with the others. Better to be in the lion's den with God than in the king's palace without him. 
What a crazy point from this. The irony here is that Daniel probably had a better night than Darius. Our peace does not depend on the world's perception of us. We rest in Jesus. We have been given peace by him. I want to point you to something in Acts chapter 9 that's just amazing what takes place. Just before the verse I'm about to read, people were set on killing the apostle Paul. Paul had just been converted at this point. Uh, they, They wanted to destroy the lives of Christians, tear down Christianity. And yet, in Acts 9.31, this is what it says. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. As Christians, our peace does not depend on the world's disposition toward us. Our peace does not depend on the world's perception of us. In other words, the world can be against us. But if we are with God, we have all we need. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What do we get when persecution comes from the world? Blessing from Jesus. Luke 6, Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. In our day, so many believers have been aching for approval from the world around us that we've been willing to comply and roll over on awful, awful, terrible laws that have been imposed upon this nation by wicked rulers. But it is often in times of great persecution when the church grows the most. We ought not miss these opportunities to be faithful to Christ in the eyes of a watching world, to operate as Daniel did. Daniel did not start a coup. He did not organize a militia. He did not go home and start loading ammunition. He prayed to God. He refused to comply to wicked laws. He would not bend even on the arbitrary parts of those. And in so doing, he placed his trust solely and firmly in God alone. And great good was the result. My prayer today is that as believers, we would learn the backbone of a man as Daniel. We would grow an understanding of doctrines as these. We would be peace-loving submissive men and women of God who trained their children to be likewise, who honor the king and the king of kings. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask for great help as we seek to apply things like this to our difficult circumstances. It does seem that we are facing uncertainties that could get worse over time for believers. And so we're going to need to think very carefully about this. Father, I pray for the teaching here at the church, that we will consistently submit to your word, that the hearing of it would likewise submit to your word. Father, that we would not just acquiesce to a bunch of modernized principles built upon the history of Americans, American Christians, who have not, in recent uh, generations, competed against the wicked laws that have come into this place. Father, we are reaping the terrible benefits of what happens when Christians stay silent. I pray that you would teach us how to be God-honoring people. I pray that as the world is looking for those with principle to lead, Christians would rise to the front because we follow you. Teach us how to do these things even in difficult times. And we pray this in Jesus' good name, amen. Why don't you stand? We're gonna sing.
got all worked up, forgot to administer communion. <laughs> We're going to do that today. We're going to share communion together as brothers and sisters. This is the last uh, Lord's communion, Lord's Supper that we're going to have together in 2021. And so I pray that we can soak in it. We can acknowledge the meaning of it. That because of Jesus' death, his burial, and yes, his resurrection, we can have new life. We proclaim the Lord's death as we take of these things. If you're a believer here today, you are welcome to come forward, grab these cups, bring them back to your seat, and we'll partake together in just a moment. If if you're not a believer, just leave them here. We want those who can discern the body, as the Bible says, to be able to do that. Let me pray and kind of begin that. You walk down, grab the elements. Uh, We'll take them together and then sing. Father, we love and trust you. We thank you for your word. Mostly, Father, this morning, we thank you for the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus. We thank you that because of his going, he has given us the Holy Spirit to equip us for this work and this day. But Lord, let us not forget for a moment that the only way we can have peace with you, our ultimate king, is because of the death of Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for all of our sins. Let us soak in that truth. Let us think deeply about it as we commune together. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.